The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend and Yoda, most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello there. So, interesting one today, right? I have mixed feelings sometimes on academics, but academics that do research in the area that I'm in is always super interesting to me. For sure. So uh, today's guest has published over 130 uh, academic papers, two textbooks, and modeled or uh, designed uh, numerous buildings from Uganda to Manitoulin Island. That's kind of cute, uh, cool. A few of his specialties include applied building performance simulation, occupant behavior in buildings and adaptive learning and building controls, which is part of an annex, international annex. We'll get talk about that. Uh, High-performance building design, which includes solar energy, daylighting, and shading. And one of the projects that uh, you know intrigued Adam and I, and, and I've been sort of been following, stalking him actually because of this, had to do with a data mining project that he did with a student of his, uh, Hannah Villeneuve, uh, looking at words that guests from Airbnb had used to describe the indoor environmental quality. And I thought that was an absolutely brilliant idea. And so welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Liam O'Brien. It's good to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the next hour. Liam, you earned your PhD in building engineering from Concordia University, and I know a few uh, professors there. But uh, you did that after attending the University of Toronto, where you received your master's in uh, aerospace engineering, and then Ryerson University, where you earned your bachelor degree in aerospace engineering. Uh, you're our second guest to uh, come up through the aerospace sciences. Uh, what drove you initially into that field, and why did you switch over to the dark side and into building sciences? Tell us your story. Absolutely. So when you're 18 years old, you really don't know what you want to do. And, and my thinking was Earth is sort of finished or, you know, we, we figured it out and it's kind of boring. And, and the next avenue is in space. So I, I thought, you know, we've solved all the problems on Earth, which was very naive, especially in retrospect. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, aerospace sounded pretty cool. And I, I did the undergrad in it. And that was wonderful. And it still gave me a great introduction to things like heat transfer and thermodynamics. So it wasn't a total loss, I would say. It's a really good foundational degree, also fluids. So all these things could apply to buildings, but it, it still took me a while because I got into a master's program at U of T. And there I uh, designed deployment devices for satellites. Um, so actually, I think something like five of my devices have been launched. Uh, they were launched from India. They pushed a satellite into orbit. And that was the end of their purpose. But uh, again, you can see the connections to buildings. It took me a while to get there. Um, but satellites are really self-sufficient devices, right? And, and so that's what got me into buildings because I was interested in this idea that we could have self-sufficient buildings. But what happened is I, I realized in the evenings, I was not reading about aerospace. I was reading about buildings. And so... Uh, on a whim, I applied for a PhD in, in building engineering at Concordia, which is 
essentially one of the only programs in building engineering in Canada, or it was at the time, at least it's growing. And to my utter surprise, I was accepted into the program um, without a lot of hesitation from the supervisor. And I, I realized, you know, he, he had blind faith in me, but I, I think it paid off for, for everyone involved. And who was your supervisor there? That was uh, Professor Andreas Athenidis. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I've so known he, him for, um, oh my God, probably 30 some years um, through his work with Ashray and our, and our committees. And, uh, you know, he's contributed a lot to the field. That's for sure. There's no doubt as far as, I mean, there's a handful of people in Canada that have done great work and he's one of them for sure. Absolutely. He's a legend in the solar area. And then I had a co-supervisor at U of T, um, Ted Keswick, who you may yep. know. And uh, yep, he's yeah, also yeah. quite a character and, and a legend in building science. Ted doesn't pull any punches either. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Just just for our uh, younger audience or anyone thinking of doing a degree or a master's degree, so what you just described there, like your amazement again accepted into the PhD thing. I was like that when I got accepted for my degree and my master's degree. I'm thinking, wow, I didn't think that would happen, you know. It's <laughs> right? And then you're even more amazed when you get to the other end and get your certificate and your mum's hugging you and crying, right? <laughs> That's right. So now, now that I'm on the other side, I realize there's actually a shortage of people research. And I think a lot of students who have done their engineering degree, I mean, that's a professional degree, right? They can go become a professional engineer. Um, so why would you take another two years for a master's or another four years for a PhD? Well, if, I think it's not always obvious right after your undergrad. But in fact, the amount of freedom I have, I mean, I can, I can speak my mind virtually. And, and, you know, I set my own schedule and I can work on what I want as long as it's fundable. Um, and, and we can talk about this later. You know, I can do what I want and that's incredible. Um, so I wouldn't change anything for the world. But I, I understand if you're in debt from your undergrad, the hesitation to, to go on. But at least in my case, you know, I, I would never do it differently. Yeah, it's interesting because I've still got mixed feelings on PhDs have been, I did my Bachelor's and master's back to back. And at the end of it, I was just exhausted. You know what I mean? I couldn't have faced enough write another paper. I'd have killed myself. But it's, I think if you could do a PhD, you've really got to be going into research or teaching, right? That's the real value yeah, of it. You know, yeah. you're trying to be a thought leader, push the envelope out. Otherwise, don't do it, right? <laughs> it's my opinion. That's right. And I've heard that even, you know, a PhD can be a detriment for, for salaries because employers think, oh, this guy, you know, is going to want to be very narrow and thinks he knows everything. So I, I can't speak from personal experience, but certainly to go into research or teaching, you know, a PhD is, is practically a must in engineering. Oh, I want to give a shout out as well to, uh, to you for a couple of reasons. One, 130 papers, sir. Kudos. <laughs> That's a lot of work, right? <laughs> and two books. So tip of the hat for that. And also, yeah, sure. you know, you're a professor, right? So most people's idea of a professor is they're in this Ivy League, they're smoking their pipe, having big thoughts in their lovely wooded panelled office. And you're in an office with a stepladder behind you. Well, I'm calling Kevin. And, you know, that is awesome. <laughs> so I love the fact that you're in buildings and your office looks like you're in buildings and you've got you, know, you look like you might shoot up in that ceiling in a minute and check something out. You know, I, mean, I love that. <laughs> That's exactly why it's there, in fact. So, so we can talk about this later, but a lot of my research is very hands-on dealing with real problems because we've realized that a lot of the research opportunities come out of looking at what's done in practice. 
Yeah. You know, just to give an example, I had a grad student who went to a training course um, with a local uh, controls contractor. And what he learned there was, you know, the way things are being done are, I would say, suboptimal. I I think we can all agree on that. And (laughs) <laughs> maybe maybe to put it mildly but but out of that he he came up with new ideas to solve those problems um and he never would have understood the problems if he just read papers and, and uh textbooks and so on yeah uh, well i know well, adam and i of course practitioners in part a good part of our careers have been practitioners in the building end the end of it and you know the control side of it you can I tell you what, you know, from a design point of view, you can do all of the load calculations as accurate as you could ever do. And you can do as much thoughtful design, converting those loads into flows and looking at pressure differentials and and all the stuff that goes into engineering. And it can be perfectly installed as per your intention. But if the controls aren't right, you're screwed. (laughs) It ultimately, it drives everything. In fact, towards, I don't know about you, Adam, but I know towards the end of my career, we actually worked with the control manufacturers off the shelf catalog items and designed around their systems rather than design custom mechanical systems and try to find a control strategy that worked. That never helped us at all. It drove us nuts, in fact. Yeah. Adam, I don't know about you, but. Yeah, I, I agree. It's controls is the voodoo, right? So it's this yep, it box. Is. And- some wizard walks out of a laptop, sticks his head in a panel for a day, he's banging away his keyboard. He could be playing solitaire for all I know, but, you know, it's just <laughs> magic, right? It's voodoo. Well, there's a reason why they put a lock on it, right? <laughs> See, this is the thing for me, right? There is a real need for research, but you've got to bolt that on to applied experience, like your student, yeah. right? So yeah. this is the ivory tower thing where it don't work for me. Research in and of its own, in its own bubble, you know, that's just mental masturbation in a way, right? You've yeah. got to bolt it on to experience. You've got to bring the applied. This is why I love building science. It's not theoretical, like theoretical physics. It's science and applied. It's applied science, right? There is a Venn diagram there. And it's in where them things interact. That's where the action is, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as I said, we've learned a lot of, you know, suboptimalities from looking at real data. And we've been extremely fortunate at Carleton. I'm sure you know Daryl Boyce, former president of ASHRAE. And and he he was the associate vice president at Carleton. So he was extremely supportive of research to the point where my students have been given the privilege, some of them have been given the privilege to tinker with the, the building controls. And even if they don't go in and directly change things, you know, we have routinely, we have meetings with the operators where we point out, you know, things that could be improved. They fix it. My students have the benefit of, you know, seeing the impact. And as we like to say, a lot of the students have paid for themselves many times over because the, the energy savings they've achieved have exceeded their entire salary. And, and I don't want to say their salary is, is low, Quite to the contrary, they found opportunities uh, that are very valuable. Yeah, that's that's sweet. So you're involved in a couple of annexes that I'm really interested in, and I and I apologize because I would love to participate in them, but my hands are full and I just and I can't. But that's through the International Energy Agency, and one of them has to do with the occupant behavior. And tell us about how the how the annex got started. And, you know, what you guys have learned to date in a sort of a short story, if you would. 
Yeah, absolutely. So for people that aren't aware, these these annexes, uh, the, the name is maybe a little bit strange and, and confusing. It's sort of a, a 50 to 100 person team of researchers. They could be from industry, academia, government, etc. And they work together on a, a big problem that's of international scale. So several annexes ago, and, and I should say there's maybe 10 or 15 running at any given time, but they're on all sorts of things like microgrids and natural ventilation. The one I lead, uh, co-lead, is on occupant behavior. But over the last 15 or 20 years, researchers have realized that occupants play a big role in performance, especially in certain building types, right? So not so much in our big institutional buildings where you can't open windows or adjust thermostats, but in residential buildings or in milder climates where we have natural ventilation, you know, occupants can make a huge difference in, in building performance. And actually, this is what I learned from my PhD. I hope you don't mind. I'm jumping around here oh, a little bit. No, it's, but, it's uh, so, so, so during my PhD, I, I made a design tool, like a software-based tool for passive solar houses. And what I realized is that things like insulation specifications and HVAC rival things like set points and, and how people use blinds and windows and, and uh, appliances and so on, such that we really need to better characterize occupants. So that is how the journey has gone sort of engineers who traditionally deal with you know HVAC equipment and envelopes have started to recognize there's this whole human side um, that, that we need wow, to Wow, eh? Oh. What a concept. What a concept. Yeah. Let's think what about a, the people that we're designing for. Whoa. <laughs> absolutely. And, and and as you know, I'm sure you know even the the world of thermal comfort has changed from this engineering approach where we can perfectly predict how many people will be dissatisfied to recognizing that there's behavioral aspects, there's psychological aspects. And so we know, for instance, that giving people control over their environment will kind of relax their demands on conditions, which is kind of mind-blowing to engineers. It goes against everything we we think (laughs) and we like. So so anyway, the Annex Annex 79, which I co-lead with Andreas Wagner of Germany and many other researchers from around the world, focuses on kind of the science of people and behavior and comfort, but it also looks at how can we take data from the built environment and generate either new knowledge or improve our building controls. So knowledge in the fundamental sense, whereas another thing you can do with data is, you know, online learning and you can adjust schedules and set points and and all sorts of things to provide that that so-called theoretical optimal condition for people. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, it's interesting. We, Adam and I met a long time ago and we were talking, and one of the things that we bonded over, (laughs) you know, had to do with balances within buildings and the, and the instability created by imbalances and how people respond to that, you know, and opening windows and people will do whatever they can to create an environment where they can sense it and perceive it to be Comfortable and comfortable is a broad term, as we know. It can includes lighting, sound, whatever, right? Anything that the human body can sense. There's a level of comfort to it. You know, I was not an, an academic, but I was always questioning why the hell was it? Whenever Adam, maybe you were the same case. When you would design the codes and standards, and at the end of the day, you'd still get people pissed off at the, at the building, right? So it didn't matter how good your designs or how how compliant you were, we still had problems, and that's when. 
and it was back in 2002, I think it was, after I had sold my business and I started up my engineering practice. And I said, there's something missing here. And it was through Dr. David Schletzley at Arizona State University. He was also a member of our committee that Andre is on. And, um, and he had a student there that was studying human physiology and psychology as it related to the built environment. And I looked at his website. I said, well, this is, this is it. This is the difference between, you know, or the missing link between the buildings that we design and the mechanical systems or lighting systems or whatever, and the dissatisfaction that, that, uh, that occurs in buildings. It's the people. And that's when I started to study human physiology and psychology and said, okay, we need to teach this shit to, <laughs> to engineers and architects. And you, but you've done it on a more formal basis and have come up with some pretty interesting stuff. One of the other studies that you did was this uh, data mining of Airbnb. Could tell us about that one because I think that was one of the most, out of all the shit that I've read over years, it was one of the most brilliant ideas to to uh, get data in a fairly low cost way. Yes, yeah, open source, right? Yeah, absolutely. Tell us about that. Totally. So, so like most of my ideas that end up doing something good, I, you know, I, I just experience life. That's the beauty of our field. And I'm, I'm really not envious of people like physicists who can't even see what they're researching, right? But in, in our world, we can live it and breathe it. And in that case, I'd experienced a few really uncomfortable Airbnbs. I think of the one in Portugal where there was jackhammering and we had to leave. Like we literally left the city, which turned out to be for the best anyway. But then I started looking at past reviews and I realized lots of people are complaining about this. And then I started Googling and realized someone has actually scraped all of the Airbnb reviews ever, or at least for the past decade or something. And my colleague was dabbling with text mining and I realized, wait a minute, we could apply text mining to Airbnb reviews to learn about things like the relative number of complaints about the different domains of indoor environmental quality. So instead of Going through all these reviews, we could look at Canada's hundred, uh, sorry, 1.35 million reviews that have been left. So that is reviews for Canadian Airbnb uh, units. And look at things like how many times are people complaining about thermal comfort or noise or indoor air quality. So I had a very brilliant first-year student. I, I still can't believe this. First-year student in environmental engineering, Hannah Villeneuve. Yeah. And she analyzed all 1.35 million reviews. And uh, I mean, I, I can tell you some of the interesting outcomes. So one of them was that about 5% of reviews complained about comfort. And you might think, oh, that's not that much. But the, the question is not asking people, are you uncomfortable, right? It's asking you to provide an overall opinion of, your, of the stay, which could include things like communication with the host, things that are unrelated to buildings. So I think 5% is actually quite high, right? Yeah. And then... There were more acoustic complaints than everything else combined, you know, compared to thermal, visual, and yep. Uh, yep. Uh, indoor air quality. But it, but it was tricky. So just to give you some examples of where text mining can, can flop, we had to look for terms that might indicate comfort. So she looked for things like dim and dark and, and smelly. And so one person or, or quite a few reviews actually talked about dim sum, you know, the food, <laughs> which has nothing to do with so. With visual comfort. <laughs> <laughs> and then yes. I got a warm welcome, which has nothing to do with thermal comfort, of course. <laughs> so it, it's quite messy, right? And I would say, you know, the, the analytical side was great, but there's also value to looking at what I call small data, like read individual reviews. 
So a few people complained that the thermostat was not actually in the unit. It was remotely controlled by the, the, uh, the manager, which is understandably very annoying for people. So I think you can learn more from reading a few comments sometimes than looking at 1.3 million reviews. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now, back to the show. This is such an interesting field here, right? Because this is where you're getting the collision of building science, like data mining, open source research. It's all colliding here in a good way, right? And of course, yeah, you can get false positives and blah, blah. And that's, that's part of data analysis, right? You've got to weed them out. But Wow, what a great thing. Because I gave a talk once and it, I was trying, people were complaining, same thing, you know, brand new league gold building, why does it suck? Right? It was basically the question, and I'm paraphrasing here. Right? So my thing was I put up a picture of a stool with three legs. I said, look, we've all just gone through leg one, which is design construction. There it is, and everyone's run away like it's a crime scene. Right? So in come the FM team. But there are two other factors here. Right? There's maintenance and operation and occupants. Right? So now you're getting into the field of chaos theory because, you know, someone, because it's lead building, everyone's they're trying to put local control, so everyone's fiddling with everything, right? Oh, it's a new lead building. Everyone's fiddling like crazy, and these little chain reactions are starting, right? So someone's cold, then someone else gets cold, and someone whaps up that, and they get hot, and this whole chaos theory thing goes on. You know, so I was trying to explain to them, look, there are – it's not just handing it over. There's operational issues are like the 80% here, right? Because for 25 years, I can tell you, that building team are not coming back ever. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, what do you do? And it became down to an issue of training. I was trying to get them to lock the BMS control set points. Couldn't get that to happen. Because what you're saying to someone is this, 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 imagine someone giving you a brand new stereo system so that's showing my age here. And then saying, I've locked all the controls. You can't change anything, right? <laughs> exactly. So this leads on to my other theory that, and you're probably at the edge of this, and I'll stop talking about it, but I get fired up about this. Right? You've got the three stalls all sort of like have to interact well to get a great outcome, right? You get chaos theory. So is the answer to this algorithms that are perpetually like – scanning, scraping for information, and then making these adjustments in real time? Is that where it goes? I have a lot of opinions on this. So, so, <laughs> yeah. so the, if I put my engineering hat on, yes, like, you know, we can optimize everything. Yeah. But then you bring the human in. And, and I want to say, I don't think we should blame people at all because, oh. as Robert said, they're just trying to improve their comfort. Yeah. And for the most part, they don't care about building performance, especially nope. if they don't pay the bills. Yeah. And I think that's legitimate. And if we look at the relative cost of or, or value of comfort versus energy, it's, it's a no-brainer. But if we automate everything, we take control away from people, and then we, we lose the benefit of perceived control. So I think there's a balance, right? We, we, we shouldn't try to take control away from everyone, and that includes the operators. Like there, there needs to be some human input. But at the same time, I think we can automate part of it. And I'll give you an example at my house I have an Ecobee thermostat and it has learned that it needs to start ramping up 
before the set point increases, right? So sort of an optimal start algorithm. And I think that's a great example of optimization, you know, because it, it doesn't really bother me at all. It, it's for the best that it, it start, starts ramping up. But if it took control away from me and, and my ability to override the thermostat, I'd be really pissed off because there's going to be days that I'm you know, working out in my house or I, I go for a walk and then I'm too warm inside. And I don't think an algorithm is going to figure that out in my lifetime. You know, <laughs> prove me wrong. But, uh, you know, I really value being able to override it. And I think operators do as well. So in brief, there's a balance. There's a sweet spot between automating everything and, and having some manual control. You're back on there. I did a job in Canada years ago now, 10 years ago, and it was heavy concrete mass, radiant heating and cooling, displacement ventilation. It was so goddamn sustainable. It was ridiculous. But there was very little user control. You know, it takes half, 24 hours to move that building like one degree, you know. So, and it was dead quiet, right? So people are used to having air blown at them. So... People move in, I'm happy as hell because I'm looking at the BMS trend lines and everything's like in constant temperature, humidity's great, everything's great, and people are complaining like crazy because it's too quiet, they can't adjust anything, and they feel they're not in control of anything, right? Yeah. So it ticked every box known to mankind for being sustainable and optimal and under control, and no one liked it, and there was a dichotomy, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Part of that is a cultural thing too. So we keep threatening if we try to get Mark Paul's on from uh, Manitoba Hydro. And, uh, you know, and I, I don't know, do you know anything about the building, Liam? Yeah. Hydro? Yeah. Right. Been so, in it. yeah. So cool building. Right. So same thing, Adam. Right. All radiant heating, cooling, displacement ventilation, also natural ventilation. And it took them almost two to three years, not just to get the systems you know, working the way they were supposed to, but also to condition the people how to live in that building. And for our listeners, then you need to understand that two years is not unreasonable uh, to commission a building that big. That, and, you know, we have houses in our, in our portfolio that take just as long, you know? So, and that's, and that's important to understand. I mean, you can take a 15 or 17,000 square foot custom house or a 34-story high-rise, and they will take the same amount of time to commission. So people need to understand that. But the part that's, that's different is that when you take a custom home, you're talking maybe two, four people that you're training versus hundreds of people. Yeah. And it's a completely different environment. And, uh, you know, guys like Mark who were, he actually earned his engineering degree while that building was being commissioned, by the way, which makes him really interesting. Yeah. But, you know, he and they talk about and one of the interesting things about that was that all of these uh, sub offices that Manitoba Hydro, Hydro had were consolidated into the into the big building, right? So you have groups of people that were living in a culture within that small sub branch, coming together as one group in a big monster building, and so there was a whole bunch of social stuff that had to be addressed, and that's the human factor that we have to deal with. That we don't teach that, right? Absolutely. I think there's so much opportunity to bring fields like human factors and industrial design into building engineering. And I have a few students dabbling in that now. And I had one who was co-supervised by a professor in industrial design. And you can't imagine how many insights that student left with compared to someone that's only trained under me or only trained in industrial design. So I think that's where the opportunities are because they have terminology that, you know, I've never 
learned, except through my readings, but not through school. Things like affordances, kind of the opportunities that people have and the techniques that they have as well. So for instance, they have a, a technique called think aloud, where you ask people to perform a task, like try to increase the, the set point on your thermostat. And then the participants have to say, you know, what they're thinking, how, what their logic is, what they're seeing, how they're responding. And so that's a way to sort of gain insights about the thought process of people. Because I think as engineers in the field, we forget how people understand buildings, right? There's a lot of myths, things like, you know, if you crank your thermostat, then the temperature is going to increase faster. That's fascinating, right? So I've got this Confucian respect for teaching so because you had the ability to like really influence on a medium, long-term basis how things roll out, right? So what you say actually matters, what you teach actually matters. So my lesson learned from that building that I was talking about where everything, as far as I was concerned, was, oh, good, this was the resume polisher for me, right? And uh, my takeaway from all that was, because it went south pretty quick when the people moved in, was what we should have done should be in the uh, useless word. We should have got everyone in a room when they all moved in and explained to them why this building was different. Because culturally in North America, if you're not getting cold or hot air blown at you, something's wrong, right? That's just the culture in North America, right? And that was basically the problem. It was super quiet and because it had triple glazing and everything, it was super quiet and people were just not used to it. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's the trend of our buildings, right? We're taking the, the plant and moving it further and further away from the people. And, and you might think that a, a perfectly quiet building with, you know, nothing in sight, no, no thermostat, no light switches would be ideal. But again, that's where the engineers and architects may be a little bit wrong, right? Because people want the feedback. You want to know that if you do something, that the building's going to respond the way you expect so that you can move on with what you're trying to achieve that day. This, this is why Robert's getting triggered a bit, because this is what he's always been going on about. You know, IAQ, it's not just a temperature on the wall, you know, which is only monitoring, you know, certain things, not even all temperature ranges, right? It's not resultant temperature. So there is a real disconnect at the moment, I think, between what engineers and architects are producing and what people want or need even, right? There's, there's, the human factor is just so disconnected in the design process. And that's because it's all been siloed up, right? Design hands to construction, construction hands to FM. Everyone's running away the minute they hand it over. You know, and don't get all triggered if you're listening unless you're an architect. I don't run away. Sorry. You do. <laughs> Because it's a fantasy. If you think the design team and construction team are involved post-occupancy, you are smoking some seriously good stuff, right? That does not happen unless they're bought there with a money incentive. And part of it, you know, is our, our own problem too because, you know, I mean, I've been had a soapbox now for almost 15 years about how academia and government, particularly health-focused uh, health agencies have corrupted the minds of practitioners that indoor environmental quality is air quality or air quality is a proxy for IEQ. And they forget sound, they forget odors, they forget vibration, they forget the thermal element. And, you know, so as soon as someone says, well, what's the air quality like? And they're thinking air quality represents all of that right off the bat, we've lost. 
You know, because you, I mean, the brain will integrate all of the sensory systems, but we have to treat each of them individually. So, and, and this is the beauty of integrated design, right? So when you look at window to wall ratios and window performances, okay, so now you've got lighting that you have to consider, right? But that performance of that glass under extreme temperatures has a surface temperature. Now you've got a mean rating temperature issue. So now you've got a thermal comfort issue, right? Then depending on the solar heat gain coefficient and shading, you've got shortwave radiation coming in, hitting, say, a synthetic floor, breaking it up into particles and gases. So now you've got an air quality problem, right? Like you cannot, you cannot separate any of this stuff. But if we're only teaching people that IEQ equals IAQ or IAQ is a proxy for IAQ, we're screwed. Absolutely. And I'm glad you said that because I, when I started at Carleton, I was teaching an IAQ course. And I said, like, I petitioned and it didn't take much pushback because I, I think I know what I'm talking about. But I said, no, this has to be IEQ. We need to deal with all these different domains. And, and unfortunately, like when you're first teaching, you have to teach them a little bit separately. But every single lecture, it's easy to come up with an example of where there's unintended, unintended consequences. So one, one improvement for one domain of IEQ impacts another negatively. And the example I like to give is carpets. You know, we put in carpets maybe to improve acoustics and inevitably they, they dampen sound and, and reduce impact and so on. But now you're collecting dust on the surface. There might be impact on thermal comfort. It might affect the, the way daylight comes into the space and so on. So I, I completely agree. And I think acoustics is a big missing piece. If you look at the number of professionals that deal with visual comfort or thermal comfort or indoor air quality, it's significantly higher than if you look at people who are experts in, in acoustic comfort. And I don't know why that is. Is it because, you know, we have systems that supposedly provide thermal comfort, whereas we don't have a system that provides uh, acoustic comfort? I don't know. It's also a lot more complex in my view. I teach all of these and I think acoustic comfort is trickier, right? It's dealing with a log scale. And generally they're at least from my view, there's less sort of introductory material out there to teach it. But isn't it more, even more fundamental than that? A lot of, all of us, this is my NLP training coming in here, right? there's three sort of main sensory intakes we, we deal with most of the time, right? And we have a bias to one, so I'm visually biased. Some people are auditory biased, some people are olfactory biased, right? But that all plays into an occupant sitting in a room with a smelly carpet or dead silence. So going back to that job that I thought was the pinnacle of my resume, you know, we had to put in white noise. <laughs> right. Just going mad because it was so quiet. You know, it's below NR30, 25. It was just library level stuff, right? And I, we thought that was amazing as a design team. We thought we nailed it. <laughs> and then you get, and uh, well, and, and we also see the opposite, right? Because of, yeah. you know, if you look at the, on a, on a continuum, where IAQ was identified as being a huge issue. And so if you go back, say, 15 years ago, and the solution was was to remove the synthetic materials, the soft materials. So we ended up with glass, concrete, steel, wood, basically materials that didn't absorb sounds. So in the process of solving the IAQ problem, then we created a sound problem. And uh, so in Adam, in your case, you guys like solved the sound problem, but it was too, you know, too effective. I would love... To think, I'm sure it's not like this, but in my mind, you know, you're in the back cave of, of brain trust power here, right? Is there like a, a nominal, optimal design thing you're always working on? Like, are you asking yourself and your research team, 
what is the optimal design solution here? You know, and you're tweaking with the IAQ, the IEQ, you know, all of that. And there's this like zone where 80, 90% of people are good. Yeah. So to some extent, we're doing that. I have a few students trying to model everything simultaneously. So model the different kinds of IEQ as well as energy to um, apply that to a parametric model to understand, okay, what happens if I change one surface? How does that affect these various outputs? And and so we're working on that, absolutely. But it's a work in progress, I will say. And it never Um, stops, right? Because you're always forever tweaking it. But it would be, I'd love to read a paper. I'm not a nerd, but that would nerd me out. I'd love to read a paper that says, you know, what does that 80, 90% bubble look like? What are the parameters within there? Because that would be a design parameter you could think about, right? Well, we, we know from our work that we can get buildings that have surface fluxes of less than 10 BTUs per hour per square foot, which whatever that works out in watts per meter squared, I don't know off the top of my head, that that architecture lends itself well to good lighting, good sound control from outside to inside, mm-hmm. thermal comfort and air quality. And so that number actually drove the whale graph that we developed, which looked at things like Exergy, which is under the IEA annexes, but all the, also the indoor environmental factors, but then human factors. And what we found is that when you can get buildings like that, that you can condition them with fluid temperatures that are, you know, around, I think our numbers were 77 and a half degrees Fahrenheit, plus or minus 22.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Basically, you don't need any temperatures higher than the skin temperature of the human body to condition a building. So this use of, you know, 190 degree Fahrenheit or 200 degrees or 175 is just, it's just not necessary. Oh, they become low exergy buildings by design. By default. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so one of our, one, in our paper, we wrote, we said, you know what, you, you could take almost probably 80% of most energy standards or energy codes and burn it simply by saying that the project shall operate for heating and cooling with fluid temperatures of 77.5 degrees, plus or minus 22.5 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's it. And then let the architects and the engineers figure out how to do that, because that's what they're trained to do. <laughs> you know. And then what it does is it drives energy, it drives the indoor environment, it drives all of the human factor stuff. And one sentence. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And um, there's a case where my grad students are working in a space that was in originally intended for a single person, I assume. And so there's a high temperature radiator on the ceiling by the window, which is all good if, you know, you're sitting 10 feet away from it or something. But when you cram more people in, then people are forced to sit under this 70 or 80 degree Celsius uh, radiator. And, you know, that's not pleasant, especially for people like uh, Adam and I who don't have the insulation there. It's also a big comfort issue. See, for that is a that is a design flaw, in my opinion, right? But there's no, this is, this is why the building sector sucks a lot. There's no real consequences for bad work, right? Someone, it has to go catastrophically wrong for you to wind up in court. But that example there, right, that building was done and handed over and no one knew enough to know that was going to be a problem. When it was a problem, there's no consequences. Right? Yeah. And, and I'd like to give you another example because this one I'm quite proud of. So my office is kind of west-facing, actually where I'm at right now. And... There's days in the summer where I need to leave, um, you know, around three o'clock because the glare is intense and my blind fabric is like fairly transparent. So I can see the sun right through the blind and I I get warm, 
And of course, we know that if, if there's bright light and you're already warm, it sort of compounds, right? Because now it's your body thinks, okay, I'm in the sun, even if it's not really impacting you. So in a, another building, I was at the design table because I like to get involved in, in design because um, mm-hmm. I, I like to question things, uh, as we do. <laughs> and uh, I, I showed a picture. I'm like, look, like you, you cannot use the same blind fabric because like I leave early. And if I leave work early and I go have a beer, you know, th- the cost of that is, is quite high, right? Probably a couple hours off for me is the same uh-huh. cost as the blind. And not to get too specific, but the, but the architect said, no, no, it, we need it to have a certain look from the outside of the building. <laughs> I thought, no, the, the blinds are not for the outside of the building. It's for the, the occupants. Yeah. And, and I was very pleased because Daryl Boyce put his finger down and said, nope, I've got enough evidence here. We're going to choose a more opaque blind and uh that was that but you're right a lot of these lessons learned don't come back into the next generation of buildings yeah you mentioned i want to come back to what one of the statements said about the radiator and the ceiling and uh, sort of a sidebar to that discussion do you know um is it uh, marion uh touche from university of toronto yes i work closely with her yeah so anyways uh, they did a study where they were looking at uh, low-income housing high uh, population density in a, in a room and how it forced everybody to the perimeter. Right. And so, you know, the post-occupancy surveys were terrible. I mean, the, and part of it was the size of the condo or the apartment, the number of people that were in the condo and how it moved everybody like beds, for example, out to the outside windows. And so you end up with the downdrafts and all, and all of that type of stuff. And I thought, you know, that was a great, I mean, intellectually, we know this shit, right? Like, this is not rocket science, right? But until you do the study and you look at, okay, well, this, obviously, it makes sense that these people are complaining because of, look at what's happening, right? Crappy building, there's no perimeter zone to stay away from. You're actually engaged in the perimeter zone. And as a result, you're subject to the fluctuations. And then we, Adam, we had um, Jennifer Veach on. Do you know Jennifer? Yes. As well? I thought you would. And... um, Another great interview that we had because she has such a broad knowledge. And one of the things that impressed me about her was her dad was a, I think was an interior designer. Was that right, Adam? I think if I remember correctly. Yeah, he was, yeah, because she had perspective on everything, right? Yeah, so she had that. And so I love the fact that she had that background, but also her studies in human physiology and psychology. So when I think about you, you know, in terms of Canadian scientists that are looking at this stuff, you, Marianne, and Jennifer, Three awesome brains with great practical skills. Why are our building codes still such a mess? <laughs> We've got all this brain trust in this country. We should, why, why, why do we still have to deal with the crap that we have? Why are we letting builders and architects with the blinds still do this kind of shit when we have such great knowledge in this country? It's a good question. And before I try to answer that, I want to just point out for your perimeter in the, in the uh, low-income MERBs that you mentioned, like if you want to put a price on comfort, consider the square footage that's lost because people don't want to use that space at all. Yep. Um, and and I, I heard a great term from Kim Presnell, who's also at U of T, Toronto. Right. And um, he, he coined the term, I believe he coined this term, no sit zones. So basically spaces you just don't want to sit down in, in your home. <laughs> um, I really like that. 
So, I, so there's a question on the floor I want you to answer. I'm not going to let you go on that one. But on what you just said, Adam, you and I had, we were looking at these no-sit zones and we actually were looking at the cost. So if you said, you know, it's $200 a square foot and you've lost 40% or 30% of the floor area, your actual cost per square foot of usable space, like it, it bumps up like 60 some odd percent. It's not like $200 a square foot anymore. It's like $280 a square foot. And the rest of that is, is useless space. And so if you think about one office in one office tower on one city block, and you said, okay, well, there was a waste of, of capital, right? There's a huge waste of capital because you're building spaces that people can't use. But then there's the environmental cost as well. There's the mining of all the materials to make all the shit, the, uh, the wood that's harvested, whatever, right? And so if you think about this and you start to scale it up, that's one office and, and one office building in one city block. How many offices are like that in, in, in the city? And how many cities are like that in the province or the state? And how many states or provinces are in the country? You know what? It doesn't take a rocket science to figure out how, well, I want to use a real foul word here, how effed up, these no sit zones are to our economic systems and our environmental system. So anyways, I'll set that aside. Go back to the building codes because that's. Certainly. And I'm starting to get into this. So just to give an example, we're looking at, at thermostat data from, from Ecobee again, because they've been nice enough to make their data public. And so for the first time ever, we don't have to ask people, you know, what set points are you using? Cause we actually can look at what set points are you using it for, for tens of thousands of people. And so I'm working with NRC to look at, should we adjust the National Building Code assumptions about occupants? Yeah. I mean, I know this is relatively obscure compared to your bigger question, but it's just an example of the work I'm doing using data to try to inform policy. Your question is a great one. I think it comes down to lots of pushback from you know the way things are done and costs and so on. And of course, as much as people like us want to, you know, push things forward, there's people that are invested in pushing them back, right? People who have to pay for the first costs primarily, or the homeowners, right? You know, I, I look to my hometown of Toronto, where the average house price is now more than a million dollars. I don't know if I would want to add even 5% to that, if it means that I'm suddenly priced out of a, a home because there's a few efficiency measures. So I, I'm not trying to play, I'm not trying to suggest that that's a good attitude at all, but I'm just trying to play devil's advocate. You can start to understand the economic interests behind building codes. Yeah, so this, oh, I'm so triggered at the moment. I want to, my head's going to explode. So <laughs> to Robert's point, you always have to ask yourself, as my father would say, this sounds like a you problem, not a me problem, right? So the problem is the property development is about incentives and disincentives, right? As you were talking about there, right? Who owns the problem here, right? If you build a shitty condo and half of it's like got cheap glass and you can't sit near the window at winter, not anyone's problem except the poor sucker that buys that, right? And the poor sucker that buys that has been hypnotized into thinking that his residence is an investment, which it's not, by the way, at all. Uh, it's a failure of planning policy and to put enough supply into the market, right? So there's that. So how do we break this cycle of abuse? Because that's what it is. This is a cycle of abuse where bad work, the construction industrial complex can get away with just putting up dog shit and having people crush each other to buy it, right? So there's only two ways to do this. One is 
a libertarian solution and the other one is a Trudeau solution. So the Trudeau solution is this really changed the building code, like properly, with no lobbying. That's never going to happen, right? But let's just pretend there was a world where lobbyists went mute for a year, right? And you change the building code to be performance-based. That's one way. Or the other way is we have to put enough knowledge out there, and this is probably where universities come in, that people start demanding the real thing because that's a market-led solution. And there's no way anyone else can fight that because when ask uh, BlackBerry how it turned out when the market, you know, aggregate demand is the superpower of everything, right? Tower Records, BlackBerry, Virgin Records, none around anymore because literally no one cares that people moved on. If people could move on from shitty condos, the market would change overnight, right? Yeah, for sure. And I look at some of these towers going up and I ask myself, how did that even meet the code? I don't know if the problem is totally the code, but the fact that somehow it's not enforced or there's loopholes, but to see these glass towers with, you know, continuous slab balconies, like how, who who approved this? I, I don't know. The Condo Act in Canada is legalized consumer abuse. There is no other way to describe that. That thing would not get a reading in the UK. Canadians get so screwed by by companies here. It's just amazing to me. And I've been here 15 years and I'm still jaw-dropped at what goes on here. And as my supervisor uh, wrote in an article, you may have seen it, it's something like condominiums. They put the the condom in, you know, condominium or housing or something because it's screwing the consumer. I I didn't quite get that right, (laughs) but it was quite cute (laughs) and blunt. The answer is, don't buy these units. Demand something better, right? Use the power of your wallet to affect a change because that's the most efficient, quickest, powerful change in the world. Yeah. And one of the things we've done, because I often wonder, why do people want these huge windows? Like, is it because you need a sense of space or you want more daylighting? And so I've, I've had a student, I hired a student to photograph one of these buildings for many days. I, I paid her well. I mean, it's not the most glamorous job. But what we noticed is that the bigger you make the windows, the more the blinds are closed. So, so you give people the big windows, but then they just cover them up. It's, it's yeah, hard to explain. It, we talk about this in one of our courses, in our integrated design course. We say, you know what? If you if you uh, and look at some of these condos, there are some serious assets inside those condos in terms of paintings, artwork, woodworking, whatever you know that gets imported. If you went in, into any museum anywhere in the world. Anything of any value is not subjected to shortwave radiation, right? The humidity is controlled. The ambient conditions are controlled. But these people are buying million, million dollar condominiums. They're putting up their valuable assets and they're exposing it to this shit, sunlight. And they haven't got a clue what happens. And then after a while, they figure, well, why is that thing starting to turn yellow? Why why is the the jointery in our, you know, our imported Indian cabinetry all of a sudden starting to fall apart? You know, we don't teach them that, right? And no one, ta- no one, at, no one that's selling the condo is going to talk about it. They're just saying, "Look at this beautiful view." Ultimately, ends up wrecking the stuff inside. And like you put your student figured out, they close the blinds anyways. You know, it's just like, yeah. And then comfort might be okay when there's when the HVAC is running, but what if you lose power or the system breaks down? Yeah, you know, you're on the top floor. The space is overheating. What if you don't even have the ability to climb down the stairs? Like, oh, yeah. I'm glad you it's said so, there. 
every time everyone's going, we're going to electrify this building 100. percent And I, the engineer in me thinks, where's the resilience in that? Right? <laughs> what happens? That's a, land, that's a landmine. I mean, people are stepping into landmines all the time. You know, and I so here's a. This is the difference between an engineer, right, buying shit. And someone who's got googly eyes for the architecture, right? So when I moved in, when I when I moved into my office condo uh, here downtown Calgary, right? I told the the person who was representing me what I wanted. I wanted the north side, north northeast facing, right? Middle of the building or up to the two thirds of the building, right? And she's looking at me and going, "Well, what? You're going to lose the view of the mountains and all that kinds of shit." And I said, "Look at the sun path here, there. You know, like it goes from this side of the world to this side of the world, and so for like." 12 hours of the day, everybody on that side of the building's like a fish in an aquarium. So I don't want to be the fish, right? <laughs> so now when it gets like in the middle of summertime, right? When the, when the sun's blazing through those windows and those people are like freaking complaining that even with their air conditioning systems, they're baking, right? I'm sitting out on my patio with a nice beer and just things are good. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but one thing I want to point out is that like inherently... MERBs could be much more efficient than detached houses, right? Yes. And the, the data say a little bit otherwise. But, I mean, you have less exposed surface area. You have less materials overall. You provide a, a way for people to live more densely. Like, personally, I don't even own a car. I live downtown Ottawa. The amount I save by not having a car and by renting my parking space out, I, I, I think that could more or less pay for my retirement. It's a slight stretch. But... But anyway, like I, I live much more sustainably because I live in a dense area. So I don't want to poo-poo MERBs because the potential is there and like sprawl is a disaster in Canada, whether you're in Toronto or Calgary. <laughs> and Uber. One, one more pet peeve and then I'll turn it over. But uh, I see a lot of sort of net zero energy houses, efficient houses being, being built so far from civilization. And I just think you're offsetting all the goodness by kind of moving your emissions from the, the house to your car, because now you're going to be dependent on multiple cars. All right. So I've got a challenge for you. I personally think universities as thought leaders should be more powerful than they are. Right now, I know there's all funding and tenure politics and there's all sorts of like Game of Thrones politics goes on in universities. However, you ever heard of a professor called Scott Galloway? He's professor of marketing at NYU Stern. I have not. Oh, he is hilarious. He's mouthy. And his whole thing is um, further education is just ridiculously high. It's become a luxury brand, and he's trying to change that. And yet they still employ him because he's become so big they can't fire him. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but he's trying to affect a change, right? So you should be the Scott Galloway of buildings. You should. I don't know, whether you can do this within the confines of your university, I have no idea. So I'm riffing here, right? But <clears throat> why, why can't you be the Scott Galloway of buildings and be the person who's a thought leader, he's on every podcast, being mouthy, saying, you know, I'm challenging the building code people to do this, and then go to the building code people and shame them into doing something. Because <laughs> it needs – that's one way to affect change. You become this big person that people can't ignore, and it becomes embarrassing because you're shaming them and they're ignoring you. Do you know what I mean? I, I love it in principle. Uh, and I'll say no one no one is holding us back. I mean, yeah, um, yeah. I, I think professors have far more freedom than, than you can probably imagine. So I, I love it in principle. I have a, a habit of sticking my foot in my mouth <laughs> and saying the wrong thing to the wrong people. But 
That's fine. So look, what I try and do with my blog, I am so frustrated with the state of the industry I've spent 40 years in. It drives me crazy. The way I stop myself going post is I blog about the absurdities of it. I've, yeah. you know, I'm just a freaking lunatic idiot. You're a professor. <laughs> you could actually maybe affect change. No one's listening to me. I'm just talking to myself most of the time, right? Well, but you know, when you think about like Tad Kesek and Kim Purcell and yourself and yeah. John Straub and, and Steve Brook, I mean, we actually have some, you know, collectively some pretty strong critics about the architectural community and building and property development. There's no, the voices are there. I don't know what, you know, somehow we have to get those voices collectively to sit in front as a panel in front of the voice or in front of the uh, authorities, those that are hold, holding us back. And it's time for a two by four to the side of the head, frankly. You know, I mean, we've already left a legacy of architecture that's bad for the next generations to come. I mean, there's no, there's no avoid in it. We can't, I don't know how many billions and billions of square feet of bad architecture that exists. It's not the new shit that worries us, as we all know. It's the old stuff that's, yeah, you know, we have, it's, it's infected. You know, we're in a pandemic, people. <laughs> We have a pandemic of architecture. <laughs> it's killing Absolutely. us. Absolutely, and the leg, as you kind of inferred, is is the big problem, right? Because yeah. we're stuck with yesterday's architecture for decades. So, look before we go on to the wrap up, short fire questions. I just want to plant this idea in your head. I believe people like you who are leading research, teaching young people, right before they go into their careers. You have a lot more power than you realize. You have a lot more influence than you realize, way more influence. So I challenge you to Google Scott Galloway, be that dude for the built environment, man. I'll be all in on that. I'll bayonet the people behind you, give, give you back cover. <laughs> I will do that, I promise. <laughs> all right, so yeah, we're getting, unfortunately, we're at the end of our time here. So we have some, Adam calls them rapid fire oh, questions. Right. Yeah, so Adam, what's your what's your rapid fire question? Well, based on your unrealized power, you know, what what advice do you give to someone who's you you've had them for say four years or two years, whatever their their length of study is, you've been molding them and you're kicking them out into the into the workplace. Now, what would you like to see them do? What advice are you giving them when they go? I'd really like to see them be influential. I, I think it's one thing to, you know, be a handbook engineer, but it's another to really change. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, th there's a tendency, especially in other uh, fields of engineering to, to be handbook like engineers, but I think buildings, you know, especially building systems and energy performance and comfort cannot be treated that way. We need to look at them in a custom way and understand all the interactions and, and you can't, you just can't put that down in a handbook. There's no handbook that can force you to, you know, consider all these connections. You need a human with intellect to be able to do that and convince everyone that that's important. I like it. Yeah. Liam, I think, did you mention you said you had kids or no kids, no kids, grandkids or uh, nephews, nieces? <laughs> I don't know how that would work, but <laughs> sure. I have nephews and nieces. So let's just say, for example, that, um, you know, your nephews and nieces are all like in, you know, I mean, I just say they're 12 year olds, 12 to 14 year olds. Right. And you're sitting there, you know, like an oracle. You've been invited to their classroom. There's a hundred of them, you know, little boys and little girls, their futures ahead of them. What do you say to them about architecture and engineering and 
the future of the the planet as you know what what, what kind of message do you want to leave those little kids those little minds of theirs I would say there's a lot of room for improvement and it shouldn't be that hard to improve the status quo because you know even applying today's technologies would be a, a huge improvement over what we're doing now yeah absolutely well you know they I mean ultimately you look at Time, as everybody knows, goes by really fast. And all of a sudden, those 12, 14-year-olds are 24 years old, right? 10 years goes by. And the buildings that we have in inventory are 10 years older. And energy changes in terms of its cap, its cost to convert it and use it in buildings. And uh, so somehow, uh, we have to have faith that these little kids, these little minds, will solve the problems that we created for them. And uh, I don't think the I think the future for the most part is looked after itself. We like you pointed out the tech we have the technology. It's just it's applying it. Yeah. We don't need. In fact, we could stop doing research work today on just about everything and just apply what we know, and we would be we would solve eighty percent of the problems, right? I would totally agree with that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the other thing I wanted to say today is that in Canada, in North America, we have huge buildings. Like the amount of square footage per person is insane. If if I look at my family, my mom owns a big house in Toronto. I own a, a small townhouse in Ottawa with my wife. We have a cabin. She has a cottage. It's like, this, this is insanity. So it, it's not just an energy efficiency matter per square meter, right? also per person. And I think we need to make better use of our buildings. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I've traveled a lot and I've lived overseas a lot. And what struck me when I moved here was how spoiled really Canadians are in terms of like natural resources, space, just the amount of space here is just mind-blowing to most people. When you go and see how other people live, this place yeah. is goddamn nirvana, but no one knows. Right? Yeah. No one's aware of this. And if you look at the energy efficiency gains in, in Canadian housing over the last three or four decades, I think it's about half been eaten up by bigger houses, yes. which is a real pity, right? And so on the one hand, maybe we're living better, but if we look at the total emissions and energy use, which is really what matters, you know, there's a problem there. There was a trend line up until the housing crash in the U.S. where the square footage per person was going up, you know, and you had like people that were building. In the beginning, it was the 1,400 square foot war house or 1,200 square foot war house and a family of seven, you know, living in it. And then, you know, here we are 30 years later, 40 years later, and now it's you know, 4,000 square feet for less people per square foot. And that trend continued up until the housing crash. And then there was people, including myself, I thought, okay, well, maybe now people will begin to realize just how screwed that up is. And there was for a period of about a year and a half, two years, where the, where the housing industry was recovering, where the square footage per person was going down. That only lasted as long as the economic recovery, because as soon as the economic recovery took over, back where we're back on the trend line again. If I go walk down the road here, every other car is an F-150. Any country that has had, there's no F-150s in Europe anywhere. Do you know why? Because you can't afford to put gas in them. And you can't park them anywhere. And you can't park them. <laughs> you know, a Canadian is like, a Canadian who lives in a 3,000 plus square foot mansion with a pool and F-150 saying, I'm worried about the environment. is like a really fat person, you know, ordering the double... Sunday split and convincing themselves they got glandular problems. You know, it's just 
yeah. it's self-delusion, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then throw in COVID, and now everyone thinks, you know, they're going to be working from home forever, which is probably not true, I, I hope. So now they can justify a bigger house that's like, you know, 100 right. kilometers away from yeah. where they used to work. That's going like, to be an unintended consequence of this, for sure. Yeah, that, that really concerns me. Beyond, you know, traditional uh, measures of environmental impact, like, you know, land use and greenfield development, you know, is, is a problem that, that we need to appreciate in Canada more. Yeah, actually, it's going to be really interesting, like, five years from now and seeing how that all played out. Because I think you're right, there's going to be a... It's not going to be cities aren't dying, right? But they're not going back probably to the vibrance and density they had. And you're going to get this spill, even if it's a 5 or 10% spill to suburbs, that is a massive environmental footprint. Absolutely, considering the much lower density than the city the of Toronto, for example. The incidental journeys, the incidental gas use, resource use, it's, it's freaking frightening, actually, if you did the numbers. Yeah, and, and I know we're out of time, but I am doing a study looking at this, so we're measuring, uh, for now, just 10 people's activities and, you know, driving transit, uh, household energy, office energy. We're trying to measure this. Well, when you've got that all wrapped up, come back on and we'll talk about it because that, that is fascinating, man. Because again, people, you don't know what you don't know, right? You're a fish in a bowl, you don't know you're in water. And part of the solving this problem is putting information out that's digestible that people can understand what's going on. That doesn't happen really very well. Absolutely. That's on you, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, this is Lou. Thank you for coming on. That is great. I've been, well, like Robert said, I've been stalking you like a crazy ex-girlfriend for a while now. Love your work. <laughs> yeah, and like uh, yeah, it's been great to talk to you and love to have you back on. If you've got a paper you want to write, you just give us a call. We'll come back on, man. That'd be wonderful. This, this was a fun time and it went so fast. And uh, I'm an avid listener, so thanks for all your work. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software. Blue Rhythm is the commission software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. Frankly, it's just chaos out there. Blue Rhythm removes this chaos. It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is their painless and fast onboarding process. Our team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue Rhythm for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional and functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, go to bluerhythm.com or call country code plus one, six one two, 460-8305. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode 26 of the Edifice Complex podcast. Robert, Robert, we there yet? I'm bored. <laughs> and I'm, and it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from Sensor Suite. Go on. Sensor Suite, yep, they're an innovator of smart building technology. We like them. They can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you time and energy. 
You mean that's the suite of moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century? Yeah, I know, another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains. Okay, I'm in. How do I find out more? Gotta go to sensorsuite.com or call 1-855-773-6767 and also check out the July 2020 episode of the NFS Complex podcast and listen to Census Suite CEO Glenn Spry. And now, back to the show. Adam, I love those interviews that we have where uh, we have people that are willing to speak up and out and against stuff. Leah made some great comments. I Right off the bat, well... I know how you feel about uh, teachers and the ones that have inspired you as I have been inspired, you know, by past teachers. And and we were just talking about uh, before we did the wrap here, though, how you had a history teacher that left an impression on you he, as a young well, man. He's, he's quite a humble guy. He's getting all his research, but I don't think he understands how much power he has, how much influence he has. It's probably the better word. I remember yeah. all my great teachers. I have an interest in history because a history teacher I had when I was 13 got me interested in it. I still remember her to this very day, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm 57 now, right? You know, so you do not forget good teachers and they influence your thinking and career trajectory, trajectory even if you don't know it, right? Yeah. This is one of the reasons I love what we're doing because people like Liam, Peter Simmons, people need to know about these people so they can go to them for advice, for guidance, just to model themselves on them, right? Because being a great teacher is also about being a role model and influencing thought and asking own questions and letting people run with it, right? That yeah. is great teaching, particularly when you're at his level. So, again, but it's unrealized because academics are normally quite, you know, sort of like inward, introspective, just bogged down in their research. They don't understand the communication power they have. Yeah, it's massive. I'm, I'm with you. Like I, when I think back, am I the teachers that I've had over the years? The same thing. I was like 13 or 14, and I was, and I was inspired to study the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, I was more interested in girls and hockey, and you know. But somehow, this guy got it into my brain that this is something you should look at. So I did, and you know what? It was, it was fascinating shit. For a 14-year-old brain that was more interested in chasing <laughs> chasing yeah. girls. He said something early on when, when we asked him about his origin story. You like to call it the Spider-Man yeah. the, the stuff. And he said, you know, when he went into the space sciences, he, he said, well, Earth is boring. We've solved all of the Earth issues, so I'm going to go look at space. And then he came full, full circle, obviously. And as you can tell from the interview, you know, that that he very much sees that earth is, is not boring. And what we do here on earth is, is very important stuff, particularly as it relates to architecture and buildings and property development. And, um, and it's cool. Like he said, space is cool, but so is building science is cool. And he represents coolness in the studies and stuff that he's doing. And he also made a really good point. That was, is that the aerospace studies was a good background and then we've said that before over and over and over again. And it doesn't matter what gender you are or from what part of the world you are on, because we've been interviewed people from everywhere, that the science is STEM education allows you to transfer your knowledge to any field. Yeah. I mean, you could do an aeronautical degree and think, oh, I didn't like that. And it's a sunk cost, but it's not because 
the level of math and number crunching you're doing there, you can apply it to data analysis, to engineering, electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, right? You, there's a pivot there that's probably easier than most pivots most people could make, right? Yeah. So it's, you know, we're really encouraging people to, to get that STEM education, whatever it is, and, and never see it ever as a loss or that you call it, you know, the sunk cost, which I think is a great, uh, great analysis. It never is. When it comes to STEM, if you were bitten early yeah. by the interest in the sciences and that stays with you, your academics are transferable to adjacent fields, which is what our podcast is a lot is about. It's about the adjacent stuff, right? Yeah. And we've had many guests on that have that STEM background that have moved laterally, you know, yeah. up, down, side, whatever the direction and they were able to uh, continue on with their passions, which was what this is all about. Yeah. You know, find your passion and, and uh, feed it. I loved his adjacent thinking in mining that Airbnb open source data. That's I was just going to mention that. That is genius. <laughs> right? And so, but, and he, but he said that came from his own life experiences, which was really important. That, I mean, don't, don't under, we can't underestimate that statement, the life experience that he had being in a B&B and then thinking to himself, well, you know, there's reviews on these things. And then his student, Hannah, coming up with the ability to 1.35 million reviews. Yeah. Kudos to her, man. You know, and, then, and what they got out of that was valuable stuff. But he also made a really good point, too, is that, you know, like that's a lot of data to cover. But actually reading, so there's the macro data. Yeah, and then right? the, dr- the drill downs. Then the drills down, and he said, you know, oftentimes you get more out of looking at the reviews than you know the micro stuff than you did out of the macro stuff. I thought that was pretty interesting too. You brought up always again. I was I was like the comments that you have this chaos theory that you introduce. You, know, you get your three legged stool there, and yeah. you can do all of you know the facility management and the and the architectural engineering shit, and then you put in the human factor, and it just gets chaotic. Oh god, yeah, man. Humans, I mean, we are just chimpanzees looking for a girl at all. <laughs> just chaos. I mean, this is the thing. And it, going back to that super sustainable job I did where I thought we nailed it, right? And it, the human factor just wasn't, it wasn't that we didn't design for comfort. It, we didn't factor in how to take people with one cultural experience. Right. And then ease them in rather than just drop them in and go, have a nice day, enjoy. (laughs) So that was my real lesson learned. Ever since then, when I've worked on anything that's sort of different or super innovative or super stone, I always make a point and advise people, you've got to get people in a room and explain to them what this experience is going to be like. Otherwise, you're going to get callback after callback after callback. Yeah, you really have to set the expectation and and lead them through that so that they what they're experiencing, they're, they have an awareness, even if, even if it's an intellectual experience yeah. rather than a physical experience that, you know, they understand, okay, well, we were told this is what's going to happen and we were told that this is going to take some time. And so it's not a big surprise. But right? you also get the opportunity to explain to them the benefits of having this. this sure. Well, you know, one is like, obviously, it should be more comfortable once you're used to it. But two, you know, there's a big cover over the, the west window here we're saving 35 percent of our cooling load here that don't mean anything to you but to that to the environment that is you could put that in that's it's trees that's it's cogent right there's an educational opportunity there just to push that needle a little bit right yeah and have people think about it yeah i mean if, i've used the analogy before that you know when you think about a small village 
Yeah. You know, where the mode of transportation is a jackass, a donkey, right? And then along comes this guy on a, a girl on a horse. Yeah. You know, nice stallion, yeah. whatever, mare. And so you're looking at your donkey and then you're looking at the horse and you're looking at the donkey, you're looking at the horse and you're going, why are we riding donkeys, right? Well, we have an architectural community of inventory buildings that are donkeys. And, but we also have now started to build up a barn with enough thoroughbred horses that we know what good buildings are supposed to be. And we can make the comparison to the jackasses. And we've been living in jackasses buildings for a long, long time. But we have now people that are living in the thoroughbreds. And, you know, so now there's a comparison. And so, you know, we need, we need to actually expose the jackasses for what they are and let more people understand what it's like to be living in a thoroughbred building. He also made a comment, which I love, the handbook engineer. Oh, I was just about to say that. I love that. That's the mic drop. Just have a nice life, have a good career. Lay him out. Yeah. <laughs> totally. You know? But you can see why people do it, right? Because it's defensible. I did it by the book. And it's what we've done in another building. That is the logical thing to do if you're an engineer, right? You don't get sued. You get less callbacks. You can move on to the next job quick. It's formulaic. There are so many incentives to be a handbook engineer, right? Yeah. You've got to, to crack that nut and change that. It has to be a demand-driven thing. Someone has to say, no, I don't want a handbook job. I want a proper job, right? And I want these factors. If I had it my way, every uh, researcher, academic uh, researcher in the building sciences, or maybe in any field of study for that matter, before you're allowed to do research, or write, sorry, before you're allowed to write a research paper, yeah. you need to have at least two years under your belt in an application world, either doing facility management, commissioning, yeah. uh, whatever. But you have to be able to take your academics and put it into real world practice. So when you start writing those research papers, that there's, there's a real world experience to it. Because I get, I'm involved with a lot of academics in my work at ASHRAE, right? And we read research papers all the time. You can tell a pure academic who's never been in the field, never commissioned a system, has never learned how to actually even design a system, but they're a handbook engineer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, they're the, they're the quintessential handbook engineer. And they will tell you, you know, from their research work, this is how it is, and this is how it should always be, and that anybody else out there, you're... Well, again, I want to use a foul word, <laughs> but the reality is, is they're so out of touch with reality that the statements that they make in the paper might apply to the paper. And in their little world, that might be a true statement, but in the real world, it doesn't wash. It doesn't hold water. And that's the difference between a handbook engineer and an application engineer. This is why I always go back to our field of engineering is applied with a capital right. applied, right? Bold, underlying quotes. And, you know, this is where people like Liam have the ability to hammer that home. He sounds like he understands that. There's yeah. a lot of people in his position that actually don't, I think. Yeah. You know? So, again, he's, his ability to influence things is amazing and unrealized and probably underestimated and unknown to some degree, right? Yeah, I agree. I'd love to see him turn into a Scott Galloway type figure where he's just like, that guy, and he's so loud, he can't even be put down. He's sort of uncancelable, you know? <laughs> <laughs>
Everybody's well, not in many a ways, place for an academic, right? True enough. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, but in many ways, you and I are, we're, we're, you know, we're fortunate because, you know, we're semi-retired, retired yeah. type of stuff. And we've been through our career. No one's going to fire us. We can say whatever the hell we like. And we yeah. do say whatever we like because no one's, there's yeah. no consequence anymore for us to speak our mind. Even when we were in our careers, we did that. And yeah. some oftentimes got into trouble. Sometimes, you know, if I was like 20 years younger, you could make a comment here and get called into someone's office when you go ahead and work Monday. They go, you know, we're working on this job. I don't think you should be saying that. That happens, right? This is the beauty of, you've either got to not care, really not care, or be towards the end of your career and be uncancelable, right? Because powerful people don't like change. You know, if you're a contractor and everything's going your way and handbook engineering works for you, why the hell would you want to change? You don't want to change. Yeah. I remember one uh, lecture Joe Steebrook gave from Building Science Corporation, and, and I think it was in Seattle or someplace like that. And there was uh, an academic, architectural academic person in the audience who uh, took Joe to task. So you, get, you have to picture this. Okay, so you're in a lecture theater, right, where he's down on the floor and everybody's looking down on him, right? And he is the oracle of building sciences around the world, and is happy to use colorful language. Not a problem, right? Joe's Joe will use colorful language. And this guy takes him up on his attack of architecture. And I love Joe just like. Hold my beer. (laughs) Like, oh yeah, he just, he just tore into this guy in front of his 99 other colleagues, you know, and, um, and it's, and to me, I'm listening to this. I'm going good on Joe. You need to set the world straight. And you know what? You can't fire him. Yeah. You know, you're not going to be able to, I mean, he doesn't, People from all over the world will hire him. So it's not about money. It's not about contracts. It's not about that. Joe is doing that because he wants to change how we do shit. And if you're going to get up there and from a pure academic point of view without having any scrapes or bruises, you got no war wounds, you've never stepped your foot into a landmine before, just shut the F up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with that. But I tell you, Liam, that was a good interview. I like him. I love his work. And yep. he's sort of relatively young, you know, he's got a lot of runway there. Hopefully he's going to change yeah, a lot absolutely. of minds and influence a lot of minds as he goes forward. Yeah, so we have to clean the clear the field so the guys like that can keep running those runways. Yeah, Because he's got right. another 20 years or whatever he wants to do, yeah. make changes, right? So. Great interview. See you, you, know, you know, for, for the people that are listening to this yeah. to their podcast, because we have now a good following and people who are regular listeners, we're building up a huge, huge resource here assets of people's thoughts their opinions and you know we again just a reminder to the parents that you know encourage your kids your students to listen if not the whole podcast at least to our wrap-up you know and if the wrap-up you know because in the wrap-up we 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 do the summaries and i gotta tell you man it's we have a a lot of great advice that have come from our people that we've talked to yeah God, I wish I'd known half of this stuff when I started out. (laughs) (laughs) See that. (laughs) Okay, take care. I'll see you in the next one. All right, man. Cheers. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.